Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. This is the first episode in our series about the upcoming federal referendum about a First Nations voice to Parliament. For today's episode, we'll be discussing the history of referendums in Australia. When have they been held? What sort of issues have been put to public votes? And what sort of results have been produced? I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Paul Kilday. Paul is an Associate Professor at the University of New South Wales in the School of Global and Public Law. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ben. Good to be with you. And my second guest is Andre Brett. Andre is a lecturer in history at Curtin University. Hello, Andre. Kia ora, Ben. Thank you for having me. Kia ora koutou, everyone. So the Australian referendum is deeply entwined with the creation of the Australian Commonwealth at a federal level. Uh, the constitution was put to the people of each colony in the late 1890s for their eventual approval. Throughout the 20th century, numerous referendums have been held to change the Australian constitution, but it's been quite rare for federal referendums to be held for other reasons. There was a 100-year gap between the conscription referendums of the First World War and the 2017 marriage equality referendum. For today, I want to bring everyone up to speed about referendums. How do they work? And what could history teach us about what might happen next month? Australia hasn't held a regular constitutional referendum since 1999. Anyone younger than about 42 hasn't cast a vote in a constitutional referendum, although we did hold a different kind of referendum in 2017. When you examine the history of referendums in this country, we go to the polls quite often, but we don't do it on just any issue. Paul, is it fair to say that referendums on general policy issues are quite rare, while they are usually used more for deciding the mechanics of our democratic institutions? I think that's broadly true. And I guess the first thing to say is that in Australia, we have never really fully embraced the referendum. We don't hold a whole heap of them. Um, Since federation across both federal and state governments, we're looking at about 100 proposals all up. And I think in the main, when we do hold them, they are about some of those big constitutional governmental issues, you know, amending the constitution to alter the structure of parliament or create new institutions um, like the voice, changes to powers of the Commonwealth. But there are a number of kind of policy referendums in our history, which are really, really interesting. And particularly in the early part of the 20th century, we held a lot of them. So we held a lot of referendums at the state level on things like hotel closing times, on prohibition, of course, those two conscription referendums. And we don't hold a lot of them anymore, but, you know, daylight saving is a really persistent issue in Western Australia and also in Queensland. And if you do kind of look around um, and pay attention, as I like to, to these things, politicians from time to time are proposing policy referendums on a whole bunch of issues. So you've got Pauline Hanson on immigration levels, Tony Abbott on a carbon tax, um, you know, retail trading hours is coming up in South Australia. So policy referendums, sure, not as common as those kind of constitutional governmental ones, but still definitely in the picture. As you're saying that, it's reminding me that uh, in local government in New South Wales, they call them referendums or polls. Referendums are usually about the, the structure of the council wards, councillor numbers, how you elect a mayor, that kind of thing. But then they have these polls and the neighbouring council to where I live had a poll a few years ago, which we I would I would call it a referendum, um, about should we shut some of the pools? Like that was just an issue that the administrator put to the voters. It was very unpopular. It was it failed badly, which anyone could have predicted. Policy issues do occasionally come up at that level as well, where you have lots of these little referendums popping up at every election. Andre, referendums don't have a great history of success, certainly at the federal level, maybe a little bit better at a state level. So what are the stats on like how many of these we've had? Well, this is the interesting thing, because picking up on what Paul is saying with the history of the referendums, not only were they more frequent in the past, 
but Australia and New Zealand were innovators in terms of using referendums in Westminster systems. Uh, and so, you know, we've had 44, obviously, at the federal level. We've had plenty across the various states going back into the colonial period, uh, which is quite a contrast with the UK, where there were not referendums until the 1970s. These were not part of their history. Uh, whereas you look at Britain's seven Australasian settler colonies in the 19th century, which form a common colonial community. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, the first referendum or plebiscite was held in Otago province in 1867 uh, to settle a dispute between the province and the central government. New Zealand abolished its provinces, but it then held regular referendums on prohibition or other aspects of liquor sales uh, from 1894. Then this was picked up, as you mentioned in the introduction, Ben, from the other colonies uh, with regards to federation. Obviously, if New Zealand had not withdrawn from the federation process, it too would have held a referendum to join. But it never got that far. The eastern colonies went ahead in 1898, 1899. Western Australia gets on board in 1900. And then, you know, we have quite a vibrant referendum scene in the first half of the 20th century. We have some quite momentous referendums in the first half of the 20th century. But yeah, they've become much more rare since then. So we've had 44 constitutional referendums in Australia. Eight of them have passed. We've also had the three non-constitutional referendums, the two on conscription which failed, and then the marriage equality, you know, sometimes called postal survey plebiscite. I'd also mention the uh, vote on the national song. Oh, yeah. No, I can't forget that. The National Song Poll of 1977 as well. So, And there were also a couple of rarities. Uh, in 1951 and 1965, there were two compulsory postal ballots of wool growers in Australia, and these, in their enabling legislation uh, and regulations, were called referendums at the time. So everyone who owned a business where they grew wool or everyone who worked in the wool industry? Yeah, everyone who had sold, uh, who had produced a certain quantity of wool in the preceding year was uh, both eligible and required to vote in these two, uh, what were called wool reserve price referendums. So I want to get back to federal in a minute, but you mentioned prohibition, and it is an interesting one that you look at. There's a number of, you know, Paul, you mentioned this, there's a number of issues that uh, people have voted on policy issues, but a lot of them have to do with alcohol, right, in a, in a broad scope of that area. What time pubs close, um, whether alcohol is allowed at all, allowing of licences. Some of these you would call state referendums and some of them were really local referendums for a local area. Yeah, well, I think it's really taking us back to a time which is very different to now, but um, liquor regulation was a really contentious issue back in the early 20th century. And so I think that tells us why we held so many referendums on it. Um, and it's because it's the kind of issue which is just too hot for politicians to handle. They are worried that if they put in place a particular closing time that's too late or too early, or they ban liquor sales when the people want it, that there's going to be a massive backlash against them electorally. And so it's the kind of issue where politicians see uh, immense kind of advantage if they just simply hand that hot potato over to the people. And that's what you are seeing in the early 20th century. You've got the rise of the temperance movement. They've got their eyes on certain objectives, uh, one being 
early closing time, so 6 p.m. closing for pubs, um, but also for many a longer-term goal of prohibition. And you do see, I think it's three states during the First World War who hold referendums uh, on 6 p.m. closing, and so 6 p.m. closing comes in. In Victoria, it stays in place for a really long time. And in fact, they hold a referendum in 1956 on the eve of the Melbourne Olympics on whether closing time should be pushed back. As Victorians vote no, which meant that tourists coming from across the world couldn't get a drink um, at certain hotel or at hotels after six is quite amazing. And in terms of the prohibition, one's really interesting there is that Australians voted no to, to all of the prohibition polls in places like Western Australia, New South Wales, and the ACT. So we didn't want to go that far. Really, one of the most interesting ones to me is the 1928 poll in the Australian Capital Territory or then the Australian Federal Territory. Uh, you know, there might have been more sheep than people living in the Territory at the time. Um, and it was just, a, I think, about a year before or just around the time that the Federal Parliamentarians moved to Canberra. It was a big issue. Should the Australian Federal Territory remain dry? Should politicians and everyone else have to duck over the border to Queenbeam to get a drink? Or should liquor sales be permitted? And in the end, those who were able to vote voted against um, continuing of the dry, dry territory. So in that case, prohibition was the status quo. The prohibition had already been implemented and there was a vote on lifting prohibition. Yeah, that's right. That, essentially, that was what was going on. It's great for a podcast because no one listening to this will be able to see it, but uh, I've never done this before, but uh, I've pulled out a book that I have, which is a his, uh, Atlas of New South Wales Electoral History, and it actually contains at the back maps of referendum results. And I'm looking here at the 1954 closing hour referendum, which showed that the eastern central peninsula of Sydney voted very strongly for 10pm, but the kind of Concord, Ashfield, Strathfield area voted very strongly for 6pm, which would have been a bit of a difference about the kinds of people that lived in those areas. Uh, the country kind of came in between inner city Newcastle was very pro 10pm, but the kind of outer suburbs of the Hunter were much more pro 6pm. So really interesting trends that I'm sure at the time would have had strong correlations with uh, key demographic groups and things like that that have obviously changed a lot since then. But, you know, it wasn't just random. People were voting in particular patterns. I'm so jealous of that book, Ben. Um, that, that sounds fabulous. I mean, that's one of the things that interests me so much about referendums is you can start drilling down to that really local data and it, it, it's not just numbers on a page, it's not just votes. It's really telling you something about Australians as people and our social and cultural history. And I think, you know, it's sort of fascinating picking up on what Paul's saying about how, you know, uh, prohibition and pub closing hours were this major issue in the, you know, first half of the 20th century that politicians wanted to turn over to the people. Uh, and you see that now that's perhaps in some states shifted to daylight savings is the issue where parliaments are not necessarily willing to legislate and hand it to the people. But you get that difference between states because whereas prohibition and closing hours is a quite common experience throughout Australia and New Zealand having referendums on them. Uh, some states just straight up legislated for daylight savings uh, and have had it ever since quite happily, whereas in other states it's become a battleground and you see a quite different sort of trend in different states. I don't think there's a uniform uh, experience of this across the country in the way that there was with prohibition and with closing hours. I mean, marriage equality fits that pattern too, right? Like the Conservative government, Turnbull's the Prime Minister, he wants to do it. 
uh, it's clearly very popular and it's becoming a problem for the party, but they've also still got this base that they can't alienate by just voting it through. And using the excuse of having the referendum is a good way to circumvent that issue as well. So let's talk a little bit about the way that these referendums tend to go. I mean, we haven't had a constitutional referendum for 24 years. Uh, I was 13 when the last one was happening. But I think there are some general trends we see with them, which is, first of all, it's hard for them to pass. Uh, They often... I think pretty much all, nearly all of the referendums that have passed have usually had bipartisan support. Uh, bipartisan support is not necessarily enough, though. There's been other ones that have failed despite that. And it seems like there is this strong bias towards the status quo when people vote in a constitutional referendum. Paul, what, what do you think that's about? Yeah, look, I think if you're thinking about why do so many Australian federal constitutional referendums fail, you do need to put partisanship at the top of the list. And, you know, it's not just here, but around the world where the major parties don't agree on a referendum proposal, the yes vote goes down. And so Matt Cavortrup from the UK, he's a referendum uh, scholar, he predicts that it may be worth as much as 20 points in Australia. So, um, in terms of uh, not having bipartisanship, that's significant. And yes, all eight successful referendums have had bipartisan support. What's more interesting to me is that of the 44 proposals, by my count, bipartisanship has been offered by the opposition party only 11 times. So from the start, Australian federal constitutional referendums are really up against it. Um, and I, I think it is possible to win without bipartisan support. It has happened at the state level twice, but I think it, it, it does make it difficult. And then you couple that with, I think, um, Australian voters who do seem to be quite cautious about voting yes to constitutional change. And that is given extra bite in Australia because of compulsory voting, um, where you have perhaps less engaged, less informed voters being forced to cast a vote more likely to favour the status quo. And Ian McAllister from ANU did a study of the 1999 referendum and in his judgment, the Republic proposal would have got up if uh, voting had been voluntary. So you've got those two factors there, um, kind of quite common um, disagreement between the major parties on referendum proposals, coupled with compulsory voting since 1926 for referendums. And I think that makes it difficult, not impossible, but of course, difficult for Australian federal referendum proposals to get up. Although, of course, one of the other factors as well is there's been a number of referendums, not a a lot, but a handful of referendums that have gotten majority support nationwide, but haven't achieved that four state rule that we need a majority of states to vote yes. I mean, that would be a less onerous rule if we had 20 or 25 states, but when we only have six, it effectively means it's a two-thirds rule. And there has been a number that reached that majority threshold. And usually that hasn't been an issue in state and territory referendums. Yeah, that's right. That's one advantage you have if you're a state government running a constitutional referendum is you don't have to kind of win a double majority. Um, and uh, yeah, it's I think it's five referendums that have won a majority but haven't got over that second hurdle. And in 1977, I think one of uh, Fraser's proposals uh, got as high as 62% um, nationally, but only won, I think, three states, so, so fell down. Of the eight that have succeeded, seven have won all six of the states. Uh, one was uh, five but failed in New South Wales. 
Uh, and then there were five that all achieved a, uh, a national majority but did not, did not achieve a majority of states. Um, three of them won three states. So if you only required half the states, we would have had 11 referendums succeeding rather than eight. Uh, and two of them uh, achieved a national majority uh, despite only winning uh, two of the states. Um, one of those was in 1937, uh, and the other one was actually one of um, Hawke's referendums in 1984. And you have the Whitlam government there as well in um, in the 70s seeking to change Section 128 uh, so that you would only need to win the national majority plus three of six states. Um, but that, of course, had to go through the, <laughs> through the people and it was voted down. Um, I think one interesting question for the future is what about the ACT in Northern Territory? Um, you know, it's kind of a little bit strange that they their votes count towards the national majority, but they don't come into that second limb. Um, so if it, if one or both of them became states, then you might say, well, then it would be a requirement that you would need to win five of eight um, states and yeah, who knows how that would play out. It'd be a slightly easier task to achieve. And I imagine uh, many of your listeners might not be aware that from the 1910s through to 1977, Territorians could not even vote in referendums. They weren't even counted towards the national uh, total, uh, whereas this was changed by referendum. It's one of the few successful referendums that Australians saw it as fair that people in the Northern Territory and the ACT should be able to vote in referendums and be counted towards the national total. But as as you said, aren't counted uh, in factoring uh, states. Well, when I was at the Joint Standing Committee on Electoral Matters, Malcolm McCarris uh, threw in a bit of an anecdote and said, I've never been able to vote yes in a referendum. I would have voted yes in 1967 and for one of them in 1977 if I could, but I, I didn't. And I chirped in and said, I've also never voted yes in a referendum. And, but I re- at the time, I was confused by why he said it. And then later I realised, well, he lived in Canberra all that time and Canberra didn't have the vote. So they now count towards the national total, which means something, but doesn't mean an awful lot, um, but they don't count as jurisdictions for the purpose of the double majority. Andre, I don't know if you're across this at all. What are the patterns about which states tend to vote yes or no? Because it's not random. There are some states that are in the more contentious referendums, which is, as we've shown, pretty much those ones don't really ever win. But there are certain states that usually vote yes and certain states that tend to vote no. This is definitely something I'd like to analyse further because I think there's certainly more to say about it. I don't have... Um, the data at the moment, but I've certainly noticed in looking at the history, there do appear to be some trends and that I, I have a strong suspicion that it's not just that certain states are predisposed to vote, you know, yes or no, just in general, but that it is also influenced by the specific issues and that uh, you know, certain states are more either accepting or suspicious of specific types of proposal. But that's something that I'd like to look into further. Um, from a vibes-based sort of feel, it strikes me that South Australia is often uh, an underrated battleground and is often quite close on quite a number of issues. So I'm looking at the numbers now, and these numbers, unfortunately, also include the conscription referendums and marriage equality. Um so they're not just the constitutional referendums, but the state that's voted yes the most often is Western Australia. Uh, and the state that's that's voted yes the second most often is Queensland. It's surprising, isn't it? 
Yeah, so I think part of the story there, and this is something I'm definitely going to come back to with a blog post before referendum day, is I think a lot of those were in the early days, those early referendums where a lot of the debates then were, oh, I was going to ask about this. It seems like from my quick glimpse at it, again, something I want to properly analyse before referendum day, a lot of those early referendums were around questions of Commonwealth power relative to the states and that for whatever reason those smaller kind of fringe states tended to vote yes more often. The state that's voted no the most often is Tasmania. They have only voted yes 13 times, and that would include them voting yes to marriage equality. And I think that there's more research needs to be done on the Western Australian case in particular, because it's somewhat surprising to see them voting for an expansion, for expansions of Commonwealth powers in the early decades of Federation, given that their most famous yes vote is the yes vote in the state secession referendum of 1933, which is an emphatic yes. Two thirds of Western Australians voted to leave the Commonwealth. Um, and yet they also appear to have been quite favourable to some of these proposals that would have expanded Canberra's powers. But were these powers that the state parliament perhaps was not exercising as strongly in WA than maybe in other states? I'm not sure, and I think this is something that does require uh, much greater historical analysis than it has received. And I think if you look at the uh, state referendums as well, you can also look at different patterns. Um, one thing that's interesting in terms of state constitutional uh, referendums is that New South Wales um, just votes yes a, a great deal. So if memory serves, they've held eight constitutional referendums there and have voted yes in seven of them, uh, which is really extraordinary. And there are, lots of, of course, lots of contextual reasons for that. But it is a state that since 1970 on in particular, when they're presented with changes to their constitution, the voters say yes. When we talk about um, voting in referendums, I think the other dynamic as well, and this, this might explain why bipartisanship is so important, is there is an asymmetry in a referendum that doesn't necessarily exist in an election. You know, in an election, you've got to vote for someone. Whoever you vote for, you're going to be electing a government for a number of years, and that government will be up for election in a number of years, regardless of what you do. You know, short of a situation where there's a danger that the the democracy is going to fail and you're going to have a dictatorship, you're going to be back in a couple of years anyway. Whereas with this referendum, I mean, we're seeing it right now, you it seems like the rhetoric often comes down to once you do this thing, it's permanent, it's locked in. I think probably there's historical argument where that's that's valid to say that because it's very hard then to unamend the constitution once you've amended it. You have this asymmetry that the no campaign doesn't have to defend any particular model. And I think we are seeing parallels now with the voice where there are people criticizing the voice for being too powerful or too dangerous and also for being not powerful enough, ineffective, pointless. And that, that does feel like there's parallels there with the people who are criticising the Republic from a monarchist perspective versus those who are criticising it for like not changing enough. Um, and those people don't have to unify. They don't need to come be on a single ticket. They can all just vote no. I think that's right. I think it is very difficult or at least more difficult for yes campaigns to uh, persuade um, the public because they have to explain uh, an idea and then they have to put arguments for it. Um, whereas the no case, they simply need to use whatever means are necessary to um, 
uh, muddy the waters, so doubt, uh, you know, create fear. They can adopt a whole range of different approaches um, to argue against it, in addition to genuine arguments, but they have a lot of kind of weapons in their arsenal. Um, and I think kind of if you look back at no campaigns across Australia's referendum history, there are a number of themes. Um, and one is this idea of fear or risk, the idea that changing the constitution is risky and it's permanent, it's there forever. Um, so be careful. And I think that's made more difficult in a constitutional context because you, you can have people throw around confusing legal reasons for why you should be risk averse. And um, there's a very few people in Australia have the education or capacity to evaluate kind of constitutional law reasons. And so that just creates the sense of kind of risk. There's also this idea of don't know, vote no, and also um, drumming up fear of central power in Canberra. And they're really difficult things for a yes uh, campaign to counter. And so I think there's little doubt that the no side has the easier part of it. Uh, maybe there's some good to that in the sense that we shouldn't change our constitution too easily, but the yes will often run into these headwinds. Mm. And it's a challenge when you've got this, you know, binary sort of option. You know, Australians in particular are accustomed at elections to being able to express a range of preferences. And that's not something that you can do uh, at a referendum. So even if you're a soft yes on a given issue, that you feel broadly favourable towards it, but might not be convinced by the particular model that's being proposed, then you often end up being inclined to vote no, even though the broad tenor of the proposal is something that you're willing to get on board with. And I think that is a long-standing uh, historical issue for yes campaigns and that the most famous referendum uh, in Australian history and the simultaneously most successful one, the 1967 uh, referendum on Aboriginal peoples that attained a national vote of 90.77% yes, had no organised no campaign. There's been a lot of talk about 67. There's often been an expression that I think part of the motivation for holding a referendum on The Voice, it is partly about enshrining principles and recognition, but it's also about wanting to get that kind of public endorsement of principles. But it, I feel like maybe some of the problems they're having may be linked to the fact that the wrong lessons might have been taken from that referendum, that it wasn't the focus of public attention um, and people were happy with the broad principles, but there was no no campaign to drill into every weakness of the yes, of the yes argument. You know, the yes argument didn't have to respond to that kind of you know, legitimate disagreement or disinformation, they didn't have to worry about that because there didn't really exist in, uh, in an organised way. And I mean, I was reading a journal article about it the other day and um, there wasn't even much disorganised no campaign either, right? Like there was a few people who were like, oh, there was a little bit of, because one of the changes was changing the race power so it would cover Indigenous people. There were some people who were like, I'm not sure that's a good idea. I think we should probably get rid of that clause entirely. You know, that's a no argument, but it's not really what we're thinking of when we say, like, there was expressions of concern from a few people, but there was very little opposition. And so it's, it doesn't feel like it's a very useful model for what happens in a properly contested referendum. No, and I think I think it is one of the most misremembered 
referendums. Um, I, I suspect you might be referring to the journal article by uh, the great historian Russell McGregor um, on an absent negative. That's the one. Yeah, he highlights in this article that because there was no organised no campaign, uh, the yes campaign was able to remain very broad uh, and generalised and that the outcome has, as a consequence, been remembered in terms of how the Yes campaign pitched itself. You think of uh, the famous slogans about right wrongs, right yes, um, that this is this has come to be remembered as a referendum uh, that has achieved a whole range of things that it never actually did. Um, its symbolic significance is far in excess of its actual practical effect. That reminds me as well of one of the other real differences between a referendum and an election, which is parties make policy promises at an election, but ultimately the only thing you're voting on is the people you're putting into power. You're not actually voting on the specific policies they're going to do. Some things they keep vague, some decisions they say they're going to keep and then they change their mind later. So there's not the same value in really obsessing over the exact, you know, if I vote for them, they're going to do this thing with the policy because you don't have that power over politicians anyway, right? Like you can broadly punish them or accept them based on what they say they're going to do. But a referendum, the words are written down. The words are implemented as they're written, right? Like that's all that happens. There's a great deal of symbolic significance, but in the end, the practical significance of a referendum is written right there in front of you. I think the intensity of that focus on a single issue is especially strong when you have referendums that are held midterm as opposed to held alongside an election uh, because all anyone is doing is focusing on this one policy proposal or constitutional amendment proposal uh, and there's a real incentive for a midterm referendum as well for the opposition to treat it like a by-election and run um, against the government to try and do damage to its standing whereas uh, when you hold a referendum alongside an election we see it particularly at the state level perhaps less so at federal level is that the heat of the campaign is much lesser the political parties focusing much more on the election itself and trying to get their candidates elected and the kind of referendum proposal receives some scrutiny but not that intensity of scrutiny that it does when it's held midterm. Are there things we could do that would make these things more likely to succeed? Because the fact that they happen so rarely and they don't happen alongside an election, I think is 1984 the last time we had them alongside an election. Because of that, I do wonder a bit about the effect it would have differently and why governments aren't willing to consider having them in an election? Is it that they're actually not the most important thing on their agenda and they don't know what effect that might have on their own chances of re-election and in the end you don't want to risk it? They'd rather run a referendum separately even if maybe it doesn't have as much of a chance of success. It must be the case that governments feel that it's going to operate as a distraction during an election campaign and they just want to make sure that they've got voters focusing on what they would like them to focus on. And I suppose there's limited resources as well. Do you want to put your campaigning resources into a referendum question alongside an an election? So I'm sure that that uh, must be coming into play as well when governments are sitting down and working out whether to hold them midterm or not. This is only the third referendum event in my lifetime. We had a number of referendums in 1988, 1999, 2023. Uh, They are so rare. Do we think that if we had them more often, they'd be more likely to succeed? Or at least some of them would get through? 
It's an interesting question. I guess my sense is the answer to that is probably yes. I think we are too hung up on referendums in this country. Um, we become incredibly anxious about them and uh, governments are very reluctant to hold them because we've made them such a big deal in our minds. And I think that's a big reason why we haven't held one for so long. Uh, and so, yeah, there's a case that if we hold um, a, a referendums more frequently, uh, perhaps every election time or every couple of elections, and maybe we start with some questions like uh, the lengthening of parliamentary terms to four years for the House and something else for the Senate, something a, a little bit more straightforward and technical, maybe Australians would be more likely to vote yes. And like that book, Getting to Yes, once we vote yes, say yes once, we might say yes on other occasions. I think, I mean, looking at the history, the importance of major parties coming together is clearly part of the picture of running a successful referendum. But the problem with that, if you follow the logic through, is that it basically gives the opposition a veto over constitutional proposals and encourages constitutional proposals that are lowest common denominator ones that maybe don't seek to achieve much. And I think that's where I struggle with. So I think referendums can get up with that bipartisan support. It's certainly easier with it. But if you insist on bipartisanship, it may be that lots of good ideas are never put to the people for fear of losing. Mm. And it's fascinating that the countries from which we modelled referendums originally in the 1890s, the inspiration came from Switzerland and uh, the states of the United States of America. And in both of those polities to the present, uh, referendums, or as the Americans might call them, ballot initiatives, are half the course. They are utterly routine. They sometimes have very heated battles, but sometimes are fairly mundane sorts of things that, you know, are significant but don't arouse, uh, you know, the same intensity of public passion or laser focus that Paul's just been describing that we have here in Australia. And so although we, you know, took inspiration from the US and Switzerland, we have not ended up with a referendum culture similar to the sources of our inspiration. And one of the things about that lack of experience is it has all sorts of problems for when you actually are trying to run a referendum that like people don't have experience in working on them. The dynamics of them are different to elections. Some of the things are the same, but they're quite different. But also if we had referendums every couple of years, you'd have experience at trying particular tactics, trying particular arguments. Well, that one didn't work. We'll try something else next time. Instead, it does feel like some of the voice referendum tactics are a response to what didn't work in 1999. And then maybe next time, they will respond to the voice referendum and try a different tactic. But at the rate we're going, like, that'll be another 24 years. And, you know, so, like, by the time you you have an iterative process of trying different things and seeing what works, 100 years have gone by, whereas, you know, between state and territory and federal, we have elections every year. People who run elections, whether it's the mechanics of of an election campaign or the rhetoric and the messaging, have lots of opportunities to practice. Yeah, and you could throw electoral administration into that as well. I'm sure it's been a really interesting process in the AEC uh, just to get everyone up to speed there and running referendums because I imagine most people who are involved in the 99 one have probably moved on. And the ticks and crosses thing in terms of the voters as well. I mean, when you think it through logically, I think it is the correct. The AEC hasn't done the wrong thing. The legislation isn't wrong. It's the right way to go, but it's a very easy tactic. Apparently, the same thing was done in the 88 referendum. It's a very easy tactic to pursue when voters haven't voted in a generation to say, oh, this thing is 
unfamiliar and wrong. And you couldn't pull that same tactic with an election because people are used to the electoral procedure. Exactly. It's been quite extraordinary, really, that, you know, this debate that has sparked in the last couple of weeks with regards to just the basic mechanics of how we vote uh, at referendums. Uh, writing the words yes or no has been used at every federal referendum since 1967. Uh, this should not have come as a surprise, but as you say, Ben, uh, we haven't had a federal referendum on a constitutional matter since 1999. Uh, people have not voted this way. Speaking to, you know, other people my age in, in our 30s, uh, I've been astounded earlier this year when I said that we would write the word yes or no. They quickly understood the explanation for why and that, you know, other methods could be ambiguous or that they can lead to higher informal voting if there is a general election at the same time. But if you haven't voted in a referendum before and you're accustomed to preferential voting, this did come as a surprise just because of the generational turnover. I think you could probably throw into that a bit of confusion as well because whereas we haven't had a constitutional referendum in a really long time, we had the marriage survey in 2017 and there we each received a, a form which asked us to to put a tick in a box next to the word yes or no. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if many Australians were expecting to, to get something different um, and that again speaks to our lack of experience. The people at the ABS who had to design that survey are not the experts in this matter. That was one of... It went under the radar, but there were many small problems with the procedure that they put in place for that referendum because there's a reason we give this stuff to the AEC, the people who know what they're doing. You know, the ABS are great at what they do, but that's not what they're supposed to do. You can tell it was a workaround. And, I mean, for the voters too, like I think if you are not used to voting very often, it feels far more momentous that you you can't stuff it up, you know, and... As, lo- as long as you vote no and you keep things the same, then it'll be okay and you don't want to risk doing something. And I think having experience of voting on a bunch of things and going, well, I'll vote down some of them and I'll pass others, I think it would make people a bit more comfortable with voting yes. That's right. And I think it's also about Australians becoming more comfortable in having an ongoing conversation about constitutional change. And uh, at the moment, I think we have an idea about the constitution that we should keep it in a locked box unless there is a hugely compelling reason to change it. And in terms of what that threshold is to convince someone of the need to change it, it's extremely high in Australia now. We are very anxious about the words in our constitution, the worry that if it's changed that the sky will fall in. I think if we were having a better uh, constitutional conversation, um, then uh, we might be a bit more relaxed about changing it. Constitutions are meant to change. There are a bunch of things that probably should be changed about ours in relation to, say, length of parliamentary terms or Section 44 disqualification. But they're just brushed aside because it's so hard. Um, but if we, if we were having more conversations led by our politicians on that, perhaps we'd be a bit more relaxed about it. Yeah, you know, we've got these completely unworkable sections of the Constitution now. Section 44 is easily the most glaring example that, uh, you know, needs to be changed. But this almost a fear that, you know, our oh, referendums are impossible now has led to this sort of, it, it's bred its own fatalism that you know, there there's an unwillingness to even put it to the public by politicians. And I don't think this is really the sort of political constitutional culture that is desirable. 
So one more thing. I don't know if either of you are across the history of when the Constitution was being written in the 1890s, but I don't think they would have imagined that it would be this hard. I think maybe they imagined there'd be more states getting added. So again, it wouldn't be a two-thirds rule. It would genuinely be half plus one. I also, I found it fascinating. There's a clause in the Constitution that allows the House of Representatives to overrule the Senate and force it to a referendum, which now that we know that bipartisan support is so crucial to passing a referendum, it's such a pointless clause in the Constitution, right? Like, yes, the House of Representatives, anytime it wants, can force a referendum that will definitely lose to the people, but a referendum that will win, they can't. I remember reading that that was kind of a thing that got was one of the last clauses being barred over was the exact terms on which the House could force a referendum without the consent of the other House. I mean, there was talk for a minute that if Lydia Thorpe blocked it in the Senate, they would force it to a referendum. It was never going to, like, at that point, you kind of, you've lost the referendum. But I don't imagine that the current stasis we have with the Constitution was what they imagined when they wrote it. No, I definitely think that they did not anticipate, you know, that the Constitution would become this inflexible. And the example that you brought up, Ben, um, about the anticipation that there would be more states, I think, is definitely a part of it. That, you know, in the 1890s, it was a very real possibility that Queensland was going to be split into three separate colonies or states. Uh, And there were... You know, there, in living memory at the time, there have been other movements for new colonies to be carved out of the existing ones. Uh, there have been multiple new state movements since. Um, I'm the sort of person who has, you know, favourite referendums, and easily one of my favourites is the 1967 New England New State referendum um, in New South Wales. Uh, I believe Ben has got the uh, map of results there. Um, and, you know, there, there was an expectation that these, you know, new states would be created as required, and that hasn't happened. Other aspects of flexibility have not uh, been pursued as much as I think the constitutional framers would have anticipated. The debates around government and constitutions were so much more lively and creative back in the 1890s, I think, than today. It just really feels like a lost era in the sense that this was a time where government systems in the colonies and in the new kind of uh, federation were still being formed and there was a lot of kind of vigorous debate. There was a lot of hope about the new kind of government structures that were being created, uh, that a lot of the people involved were really bold in the things that they proposed um, in the 1890s and also moving forward into the early 20th century. I think we have lost some of that. We, I mean, we've got a constitution that works pretty well. Let's not forget that. But I think maybe with that has become a sense, oh, well, we'd, we'd better not touch it because something could go wrong. Um, but perhaps I think we need to rediscover some of that uh, re- reforming um, approach that uh, we seem to have lost in, in the, the time in between. Agreed. And I, I actually think Australia fails to properly celebrate its extraordinary history of referendums, specifically that Australia, the Federation, is a nation created by consent. Very few other countries around the world can say a similar thing, that multiple polities 
agreed by a popular vote to come together. And, you know, in the 1890s, uh, this was a quite broad democracy as well, that in Western Australia and South Australia, uh, you know, women had the vote. Um, and even in the other colonies where it was a purely masculine vote, it was a much more democratic ballot than almost anywhere else in the world at the time. And this is a remarkable tradition. Uh, here I am as a New Zealander telling Australians you should celebrate your country more. You have this astonishing past of a nation created by consent where referendums are fundamental to who we are as a nation. And, yeah, I, I just think that is something that uh, is, is not at the forefront of Australian political culture and commemoration, and it should be. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Andre and Paul, for joining me. Thanks, Andre. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. And thanks, Paul. Thanks, Ben. It's been great. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow the Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.